morning to create a consciousness in our church that is in you, who are the church, that worship is an end in itself. I want us to have this conviction that worship should never be pursued as a means to achieving anything other than worship. Worship is not a step up to any other experience. It's not a door through which we pass through to anything other than worship. I remember one night uh, during my senior year at Wheaton in St. Hall on the third floor. I just visited that room on the way down home on vacation and stood there and had all kinds of goosebumps thinking about what that room had meant to me. One of the things it meant was on a night, my senior year, I was struggling with the question of what the motive for winning people to Jesus should be. Now, I remember giving myself this answer. Well, I ought to win people to the Lord so that they could win others. And then I felt so uncomfortable with that answer as I turned it into a real live witnessing encounter and heard a thoughtful person come back and say, hmm, well now that's strange. You want me to become a Christian so that I can recruit others, so that they can recruit others, so that they can recruit others, so that they can recruit others. others. That's the purpose of recruiting people. And it hit me how miserably empty and mechanical my life with Christ had become that I could give such a shallow answer. That's not the reason that we try to win people to Christ. We try to win people to Christ so that they might bring honor to God and enjoy the experience of trusting His promises. We do not recruit people to recruit people to recruit people. We recruit people for God and for the joyful experience of ascribing Him glory. So evangelism is not an end in itself. And from that point on, all of my thoughts about the church revolved around this unique place of worship in the life of the church, namely as an end in itself. None of the other ministries of the church is an end in itself. Horizontal worship or horizontal fellowship is not an end in itself. The scripture considers fellowship very much for the upbuilding of faith and the stirring up of love. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as is the habit of some, that you might encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It is right to seek fellowship precisely for something else, namely the building up of faith and the stirring up of love and good works. But even though worship can have those very same results, we jeopardize the authenticity and the genuineness of worship if we pursue worship as a performance to achieve those ends and not for its own sake. So fellowship is not an end in itself, and 
Evangelism is not an end in itself, and neither is Christian education an end in itself, because knowledge is not an end in itself. The Bible is full of knowledge, but only that we might, in response, hope in God. There's a beautiful statement of the aim of Christian education in Psalm 78. It says, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they might put their hope in God. All knowledge is aiming towards heart hope and heart trust. The Bible does not present knowledge for its own sake, but only as a means to that end. As Paul says in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through the steadfastness and the patience of scriptures we might have hope. Knowledge is not an end in itself, and Christian education is not an end in itself, and neither is financial stewardship. You would all probably be very upset if we had a ceremonial burning of your money on this table after the offering. And the reason is because you view that money as a means to the end of sending missionaries, of caring for the distressed through pastoral ministry, of preserving our place of meeting, and you wouldn't like it to be lost as if the money put in the plate were an end in itself. Only worship of all the ministries of the church is an end in itself. But now a question arises. If fellowship and preaching and giving of money are not ends in themselves, why are they integral parts of a worship service since worship is an end in itself? That's a good question and I'm going to come back to it at the very end and try to answer it. But in order to answer it, we now have to ask the question more precisely, what is worship? And to that end, I want us to look at the text in Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Jesus is here quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, in order to expose the root problem of the Pharisees. And he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now the first thing I want us to notice from this passage is that the parallel between this people honors me in verse 8 and they worship me in verse 9 shows that the essence of worship is honoring God. That doesn't mean making God honorable. We don't improve upon God in the least when we worship Him. Rather, it means recognizing His honor, feeling the worth of it in our heart, and reflecting it back to Him in ascriptions of praise. As the psalmist says, honor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord 
the glory do his name. That's what it means to honor the Lord in worship, reflecting back to him the manifold glories that emanate from him. And there's the second thing I want us to see from this text, and this is the main thing on which we'll spend the rest of our time. There are two different senses in which the word worship can be used, evidently. This text shows that on the one hand, worship can be thought of as a series of acts, forms, liturgies, done in response to biblical commands or liturgical traditions. Worship throughout the Bible is activity. The very word for worship in the Old Testament means to bow down or to prostrate oneself. We worship by bowing, kneeling, lifting the hands, singing, reciting scripture, praying, preaching, activities. All these worship, but all these can be done while the heart is far away from God and not engaged in the least. That's one of the things that has to be remembered about using the word worship to refer to acts. They can all be done while the heart is a hundred miles away. And we all know that kind of experience. One man retires from the firm loved by everybody, admired by all of his colleagues, respected by the junior executives and they throw the party for this retiree and they make their speeches and they shake his hand and they make compliments and they give him the gold watch and everybody knows that all of this is sincere this man is really loved and then a few years later old Grumblefuss retires they gotta throw the same party the speeches are made, the handshakes are given, the gold watch is handed over, and everybody knows this time it's all sham. Nobody likes old Grumblefuss. Their hearts are far away. Or you've sat through a school talent show, and you know that a lot of the applause springs from the heart. And a lot of the applause springs from expectations and the desire not to hurt anybody. You know, you have experience of what the writer is talking about when he says, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far away. Now those are two different experiences and they correspond to two different meanings of worship. The one is a series of activities. But now the other is the engagement of the heart towards God. And that's the one I want us to talk about mainly. It seems to me that when the Bible commands us to worship, as it does, it is not commanding us to go through the motions of forms while our heart is far away. When David says, ascribe to the Lord glory, Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. When Jesus says to Satan, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And when the angel says to John in Revelation 19, Don't worship me, worship God. We can be sure that they do not mean perform some activities while your heart is far away from me. Surely they mean something just the opposite, namely 
engage your hearts in affections and feelings toward me. Worship is an end in itself. Now, what is that heart like? If that's the main meaning of worship, the drawing near of the heart to God to give genuineness and authenticity to these actions, what's that heart like? Well, it's not a heart that is just willing. We are in the grips of a very will-oriented, decision-oriented religion. And I would love to talk a whole half hour about that problem and how it emerged, ironically, right in the middle of emotional revivalism. But I'll save that for another time. Suffice it to say this. None of the activities that are worship can be performed without your willing them. And therefore, willing them is of no value in God's eyes unless the heart is engaged. In other words, the engagement of the will does not mean an act is pleasing to God because all acts require the engagement of the will and your heart can still be far from the Lord. So don't think that just by a sheer act of willpower that you can satisfy the longings and the desires and the commands of God. Drawing near to God means the kindling of our emotions, of our feelings towards God and from God. Now, I feel right now in an almost impossible pastoral situation because what I really want to stress is so subject to misunderstanding, categorization, and dispensing. It's so easy, depending on your experiences in worship and your personality, to take what I say and put it in the box of emotionalism and dispense with it, or if your characteristic experience is something else, maybe you'll put it in the box of decency and in order and dispense with it on the other side. We live in a very peculiar time. On the one hand, everybody's fascinated with feelings today. Psychology is the science of our era. All Bethel students want to be psych majors. Well, that's an overstatement. More than any other major. Books are pouring off the press, helping us understand our feelings, to cope with the ups and downs of our emotions. We are fascinated with feelings. But on the other hand, there is a widespread suspicion of feelings and embarrassment about expressing emotion. All in the same era, many times in the same people. My first response to this situation is to say this. Genuine worship is always based on the mind's perception of real truth. Solid, biblical, theological content. Otherwise, it's vacuous and displeasing to the Lord. I hope that keeps me out of one box. That's not our problem. We are not in danger of emotionalism in this church. Far from it. Come tonight, I have something really interesting to read about that. We, however, are in danger of this mistake. Namely, failing to realize that there is no genuine worship 
where the feelings of the heart are not quickened. No matter what activities we go through or how much willpower we exert. The heart must be quickened or worship is dead. Now let's be specific. What feelings, what emotions do I mean? Well, the best place to find what should happen in worship is in the best worship book that's ever been written, namely the Psalms. Here are a few examples. Some of the highest experiences of worship begin with the feelings of brokenness, contrition, and sorrow for sin. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. And then mingled with this genuine contrition and brokenness, there emerges the feeling of longing or desire. As a heart pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides thee. My flesh and my heart may fail, but thou, O God, art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then mingled in with this contrition and this longing, there comes the feeling of fear and awe before the holiness and the majesty of God. I will worship the Lord in his holy temple, in the fear of thee, I will worship thee. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of thee. And as the awe and the fear comes, and the Lord approaches with his forgiveness, blessing us with his presence, satisfying us with good things, the next feeling that emerges is the feeling of gratitude. Or thankfulness. You can't screw up gratitude by an act of will. It is there because you see something that you love or it is not there. And you are in a blank and dead condition. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. God loves those who give thanks to him and bless his name. And mingled with that, finally, are the feelings of joy and hope. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God and my help. Those are examples of some of the wide array of feelings that have to quicken the heart if worship is to be genuine. Contrition, sorrow, longing, desire, fear, awe, gratitude, joy, hope. They've got to come alive. Otherwise, our worship is just lip service and God is not pleased. And now, coming full circle, perhaps it's more clear why I think and why I want us to have this conviction in the church, namely, that worship is an end in itself. If that which turns worship from form into reality, into authenticity and genuineness, is the engagement and the quickening of our feelings, then true worship cannot exist, cannot be performed as a means to any other end. Feelings are not like that. They cannot be performed as a means to anything. 
if the telephone rings and the voice on the other end of the line says, Johnny, this is Bob, good buddy. Your mom and your dad were just in a bus accident and your mom didn't make it. Your dad's hurt bad. You don't sit down and say, now to what end shall I feel grief? To what can it be a means? It is an end in itself. If you're floating on a raft without any water for three days after a shipwreck on the sea, and all of a sudden, on the lip of the horizon, you see a speck of land. You don't say, now to what end shall I sense longing in my heart and feel desire for that land? It is an end in itself. It cannot be performed by an act of will. Even though that longing, and this is very important to catch on in relation to worship, even though that longing might give you the strength to get to that island, you do not perform longing to get to the island. It's there. It sweeps into you because of the value of that water you know is on that land. It is an end in itself. If you're camping in the boundary waters and you wake up in the middle of the night to a snorting and a scruffling outside your tent and you see in the moonlight the silhouette of a huge bear lumbering towards your tent, you do not lay back and say, to what end shall I experience fear? It is an end in itself. You do not calculate to what end you shall perform the act of fear. When you do, like I did several summers ago, stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon at sundown and watch the sun bring the darkness down the geological ages of the side of that canyon into the bottom, you do not say, now to what end shall I feel awe at this beauty. It is an end in itself. If you're a little child on Christmas morning and you open the first package and it's that most favoritist rocket you have wanted for months, you don't say, now to what end shall I feel gratitude and happiness in my soul? And when that little boy grows up and becomes a kindergartner and heads off to school and on the first day some big mean second graders come up and start roughing him up and his big third grade brother comes and stands beside him, he doesn't say, now to what end shall I feel confidence and hope? He doesn't decide to feel confidence and hope. Is there because his brother is there. And so it is with all genuine emotions and therefore with all genuine worship. Worship is an end in itself because God is the voice on the other end of the phone. God is the island. God is the bear. God is the setting sun and the favoritist rocket and the big brother. And either 
We feel it or we don't. And worship is a sham if we don't and it's genuine if we do. And now we go back to pick up the question at the beginning. If fellowship and preaching and giving of money are not ends in themselves, how come they are constituent parts of our worship service? And the answer, I think, is this. Authentic worship does not happen in a vacuum. On the one side, it has to be caused, and it is caused by the true perception of God. And therefore, there have to be elements in our worship service of substantial theological content so that our minds can perceive the reality of God, that our affections might be kindled for God. And right here, maybe you've never thought about fellowship this way, right here is the unique function of the communion of the saints in God-directed worship. A heart-quickening truth might come into your ear through a hymn, a prayer, a sermon, but might be clothed with power when you see it on the face of your brother or sister taking root. That too is part of authentic, God-directed worship. So on the one side, there must be causes. But on the other side, when the heart is kindled, it wants out. It wants to express itself. And therefore, worship has to have vehicles Vehicles of expression in song and prayer and motion and preaching and probably dozens of other things that we have not yet learned to do. So in conclusion and by way of summary, Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, even though worship can be thought of as a series of activities, leaving the heart far away, that's not what genuine worship is. Genuine or true worship that delights the heart of God is the coming alive of the heart, the drawing near to Him, the kindling of those genuine feelings of response to His glory. And such feelings are never performances to bring about something else. You can be sure that they're just a sham if we try to perform them to achieve something other than what they are. Therefore, since they constitute the heart of genuine worship, worship is an end in itself. And our Sunday morning service is unique among all the other services of the church in drawing our attention up to God and leaving them there for no other reason than the experience of His manifold glory. And therefore, I ask you very earnestly what I did in the star two weeks ago. Please, set aside time Saturday night and Sunday morning to get yourselves ready, to pray, to meditate on some of God's heart-kindling glories. Pray with the psalmist. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your word. Unite my heart to fear your name. 